Good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, or chapter 1, it, and it is page 707, excuse me, page 707 in the Church Bibles. And in just a second or two, I'm going to read from Mark's Gospel. And as most of you know, we just began our studies last week. Um, and Mark's gospel and all spirit and Lord William will continue on. I'm going to read to verse 8 and then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you could, please, let's bow together. Our gracious God and Father, we give glory to your name this morning, and we thank you sincerely for the privilege of public worship. Thank you for what we sang and what we said in our minds when we were singing, God, to you and the beauty of belonging to you, to know that your grace is the key to everything in our life. Father, people in our congregation need grace. We pray for Janet Russell's mother-in-law. We ask God that as she faces cancer and the doctors have told her there's no more they can do, we, we are confident, God, that if it is your will, you could do something. And so what we want and what we would ask for is healing first for her. And if that is not the way, God, that you determined to order her life, then we pray that as her life comes to a close, the truth of Jesus Christ, the promises of life after death everlasting would ring true to her. And not only will they stabilize her, but they will grow in her as her last day on earth gets closer. To that same end, Father, we pray for May's granddaughter, Carrie. And we just, our hearts break, God, when we hear these things. And we, beyond comfort and ease of pain, we pray for your mercy. And for you to show mercy on her by way of healing. Of course, we want your will to be done, God. Your will is always best. And you know what's best. But we thank you for the privilege of being asked being able to ask you for things, God, that we cannot do. And so we do that for Carrie now. And as the life of the church is, is about death, it's also about birth. And so we thank you so much for Stephen Ashley's new child, Henry Joseph. And we thank you, God, that he was born healthy into this world. And we know that's common, at least in our context. And, but we never want to take it for granted. We want to thank you, God, for giving them a safe birth. 
And we would pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be known to Henry Joseph at a very early age. And all the good things that come with knowing you be granted to, to Henry Joseph. Now, God, as we, as we look to your word, we need the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We need help. God, we need massive amounts of help as we preach your word. And so please give us that help for Jesus' sake. Amen. <clears throat> well, if your Bible's open, you can see in the very first verse, even just a quick reading of that verse is a straightforward truth which tells us that Mark's gospel is not giving good advice about how to live. Rather, Mark's gospel is giving good news about a person. And I can't stress this enough. Mark is not giving his readers good advice about how to live. Rather, he's giving good news about a person. And we've been trying to make that point over recent Sunday mornings. There is all the difference in the world between the two. And so recognizing that people come into this context Sunday by Sunday in different stages and ages of their understanding of the Bible, we start with what we say around here a lot. We're going to start with the basics. And the basics is this. This is a Bible. <laughs> this is God's Word. And this Bible, all of it, is ultimately a book about Jesus. So in the Old Testament, Jesus is predicted or promised in the Gospels, Jesus is revealed. In the book of Acts, Jesus is preached. In the epistles, Jesus is explained. And in the book of Revelation, he's, he's revealed as the one king who's coming. And so, in this Gospel then, Mark's Gospel, ultimately the book is about Jesus. So, what is predicted in the Old Testament is made known now to us. And now we know that this Gospel writer is telling us that Everything about Jesus has been fulfilled. So, of the Gospels, of which there are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, each start from a different point in time and eternity when it comes to Jesus and his good news. So, Matthew begins with Abraham and the genealogy of Jesus through his Jewish heritage. Luke begins with Adam and Eve in the garden. And that gives us the universal nature of Jesus and the whole of human history. John's gospel begins before time and eternity passed. So before there was time or space or anything, Mark says, or excuse me, John says, there was Jesus, the Logos, the, the living word. And Mark, as we see here, begins with the promise which came from the Old Testament. And in each case, this is important, the gospels, they're not written as biography. They're not just history. They're not written in some kind of devotional sense. And they're not written to give us some good advice. Not at all. But their purpose in every case is to tell us the good news of Jesus. The good news. This is the good news. That God loves to help those who finally recognize that they cannot help themselves. That they've been so humbled by their sin... And they recognize, yeah, they might be able to reduce their sin, but they'll never be able to fully remove their sins. And since total removal is what God requires, they need help. They need a rescue. They need good news. And the good news is that God has provided that rescue, but only in Jesus. Therefore, the gospel writers each are writing to convert. They're writing to convince and they're writing to bring confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is why they say so much 
about Jesus. In fact, if you think about it, 46% of the New Testament are, is gospel. Add to that Acts, 60% of your New Testament is all about Jesus. It's the history of Jesus and the history of Jesus' church. And loved ones, this needs to become basic to us and fundamental in our understanding of the Bible and indeed our understanding of the gospel. I think we said it last time, the gospels are written to save the world and they're written to stabilize the church and set her to her paces. Mark's gospel then, straightforwardly, is a record of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, what he's doing, what he will do, and what it means to everyone who has lived or who will ever live. So that's why Mark introduces us to a person. This is not a religious program. This is not a religious ethic. He's not giving us good advice. He's giving us a person. And you can see this if your Bible's open. First verse, Mark writes, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So as we begin the gospel, no doubt the gospel is about Jesus. And part of the purpose is, is to drive our roots, if we belong to Jesus, deeper in his truth. Good news, good news. Nothing less than the restoration of the life of Blessedness, reconciliation to God, true eternal happiness, unhinged by circumstance, right? (laughs) You get that one? Because circumstances change. The gospel doesn't change. The truth of the gospel doesn't change. If I'm living high on the hog, it doesn't mean that Jesus really, really loves me. And if I'm not living high on the hog, God is going to gather in his people. We live under God's hand. Your sins are. All of them will be forgiven. Free adoption. Newness of life. And here's the thing. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Right? Romans 8. That's good news. Your sin can't separate you from the love of God. The way you think about yourself can't separate you from the love of God. The way other people think about you can't separate you from the love of God. That's the good news. So this morning we have four headings. We'll try to work through them as quick as I can. The first heading, point made. Second, messenger promised. Arrival described. Third heading, message given. In fact, if you see the worship folder, turn to the back and you'll be right on track. First of all, a point made. So when Mark writes in verse 1, Jesus Christ, the, not a, the Son of God, most of the known religious world at that time would have said something like, come again? What are you saying? And this is what I mean. Three of the five largest religions in our day all existed before the time this gospel was written. Hinduism, 1500 B.C. Buddhism, 500 B.C. Judaism, if you count when they received the law, 1200 B.C. So Mark's gospel would have been circulated widely and a Hindu and a Buddhist and of course a Jewish person reading this, they would have to deal with the very first verse on some level Because you can see it there. Mark does not leave any other option for us. So a good Hindu would say, wait a minute, karma and not Jesus is the key. And you know what? There isn't just one God, but there's a whole boatload of gods. A good Buddhist would say, it's the practice of the eight habits to um, achieve nirvana. So there's no need of of awareness of your guilt. Uh, You don't need to be aware of your sin. You don't really need mercy through Jesus. What you need is enlightenment. That's what you need. So you don't need a savior. You just need to get rid of all desire. This is the Buddhist line. Get rid of all your desire and find enlightenment. 
And of course, a Jewish person reading this would say, you know what? Isn't he the young man that was crucified on the cross naked? He was supposed to save us from Rome, not save us from our sin. What a letdown he was. Indeed, if a Jewish person read this and they saw the word son of God, they would understand immediately that that is an assertion that Jesus is divine. That he was declared to be God, John chapter, God, John chapter 5, verse 18. So he's equal with God. So what I want you to realize is that when Jesus steps onto the scene of human history, Jesus is not interested in securing a spot among all the other world religions. He's not some kind of regional deity, if you would, looking to branch out. Jesus is not saying, well, let's increase our market share to 51% of the world's population. That'll be impressive. He's not saying, you stick with me, I'll make every day like a Saturday. And he's not saying, pick a God, any God, because you know what? It doesn't really matter, because all that matters is if you're sincere. He's not saying any of that. But what he is saying is, I am God, and there is no other. J.I. Packer, we need to quote from J.I. Packer from time to time. The divinity of Christ is the citadel and keep of Christianity. Because Jesus says there, there's no other path to forgiveness. There's no, there's no way to God. There's no way to wholeness. There's no way to eternal life in God's heaven. I, Jesus, am God's good news. So an outsider reading this, they take up Mark's gospel in hand and they begin to read. And the very first verse, or a listener sitting in a context where the very first verse is actually explained. They don't get a warm-up. They don't get any icebreaker. There's no dimming the lights. It's just right there. There is no other name and there is no other way. The gospel is not about a mere man. The gospel is not tips. But is it about God overall forever praised? And you know what? I can appreciate the speed of Mark right off the bat because time is always short. Many of us here have more time behind us than ahead of us. And then we have to give an account. So Mark helps us right to the point. Remember, by the way, Mark who failed Jesus twice, massively. Now he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with an unwavering pen. The gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we better hold tight to that doctrine. We have a jealous watchfulness over the doctrine We better remind ourselves of it often. We ought to teach it to others. And we ought to let that doctrine lead us in our daily deciding. Jesus' words are God's words. Our hearts are weak. Our sins are many. We need a redeemer who's able to save completely, even past death, and set us free from the wrath to come and unite us to God right now. And guess what? We have such a redeemer. Only in Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the good news, the gospel. That's number one, point made. Second, a promise denounced. And you'll see this if your Bible's open, that right after Mark says what he says in verse one, makes that declaration, he then gives a quotation from Isaiah the preacher and and, uh, Malachi. He basically combines these two verses and he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So, if you think about it, what Mark is describing here, or or quoting here, is actually something that happens a lot. 
Think of it this way. A visiting head of state comes to our shores. When they come to our shores, they rarely come unannounced, unless they're Russians. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was a joke. Sorry. Just popped in my head and I say it. Shouldn't do that. <laughs> but it's kind of true. But anyway, okay. <laughs> so when they come, someone greets them, someone introduces them, someone welcomes them. When our president, whenever he arrives in a room, by tradition, what is announced is, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States, and sometimes he, and maybe one day is she, we hope, when they walk into the room, there's the plane of what? Hail to the chief. It's standard fare. Somebody really important is coming into this room, and we need to know that. So when you think about the Son of God coming, Jesus Christ, it would be very difficult to think that he would have arrived unannounced. And of course, if you know your Bible, he wasn't. Luke's gospel tells us angels announced the coming of Christ. They even sang a song. Matthew tells us angels told about the coming of Christ. And he also says the stars tell the magi about the coming of Christ. And here Mark says, okay, I'm not going to begin at the birth of Jesus, but I'm going to begin roughly 30 years later with my Bible open. I got my Old Testament open. And what do you know? There is a predicted messenger who will announce the promised Messiah. That's what he's saying. Predicted messenger, he's going to come and he's going to announce the promised Messiah. In other words, Mark takes us back to our Bible and he, with his Bible, begins to establish this gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the people reading this could immediately say, you know what, this Jesus isn't some kind of like religious upstart. He's not coming out of nowhere. He's written about in the old, so this is God's plan. And of course, if you know your Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, the coming of Jesus Christ is promised. Even in the very beginning, the first book, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And theologians call this the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. And as you begin there, this kind of scarlet thread is woven all throughout the Old Testament. There is a Messiah coming. There is a Messiah coming. And when Jesus himself speaks about the Old Testament, he says in John chapter 5, verse 39, these are the words, Old Testament, these are the words which testify about me. So please listen carefully. Beyond the main and plain truth that we study our Old Testament with very little profit and large room for error when we fail to look for Jesus in it. Mark immediately locates the appearance of Jesus in the scriptures. He plucks it out and says, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. And now we're given privy to their personal conversation. And thank God someone wrote it down. God spoke. Prophets wrote it down. Mark quotes them and says, there you see, after all that time, what, some 600 years, promise was made 600 years ago. And now the promise has finally arrived. So when Mark or excuse me, when Mark writes about John the Baptist stepping on the stage of human history to announce the arrival, Mark says he came, John came as a fulfillment of what God promised. And of course, if you think about it, the very first words from the angel to the people was what? Jesus is coming. And the very first words out of John's mouth Jesus is coming. And Mark tells us the word of God is being fulfilled. The promise awaits. The appointed time 
and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come. And so 600 years before John the Baptist was born comes this written promise from Isaiah. And you can see in the text then the word from God to the son reminding him, okay, son, there's going to be a messenger who will come before you and he's going to prepare the way and he's going to make the path straight. And that's John's job, all right? Make way, make way for Messiah. He's coming. That is John's job. Messiah's coming. Now, if you think about it for a moment or two, that's kind of my job. Jesus is coming, and it's kind of your job. Jesus is coming. Okay, so we move from the promise of a messenger to the arrival, and that's verse 4. You can see this if your Bible's open. So John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, if you know anything at all about John the Baptist, you know that he was a strange man. He he was a strange man with a strange beginning. You can read about that in Luke chapter 1. And by this point in his life as an adult, he was pretty strange. What he wore, what he ate was very strange. Yet there was something about Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. So under God, there was something about John that we needed to know. Okay, what is it? Well, it's verse 6. Because this verse is essentially in all three of the gospels. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his weight and he ate locusts and wild honey. So apparently John wasn't a sweater guy with khakis, right? He wasn't. We need to talk to John about that. But anyway, he wasn't a shirt and guy, a tie guy either. So you need to ask yourself the question because this is what you do. You come to the text and you start asking questions. Okay, why did he dress this way? Why did he eat this way? And why do we need to know about this? Okay, so is it so people can mimic John and say, that's the way, so I'm going to dress really strange and I'm going to eat really strange because that's God's way, right? That's the way because somehow that makes sense. So, you know, I'm going to dress way, way down and I might come to the pulpit without my shoes on and maybe I'll wear shorts and maybe that's the thing that John is telling me. Maybe that'll be it. Like that stuff even matters. So I'm not exactly sure why we're told this But this is what I know for sure. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He he was the greatest prophet up until Christ. He bridged the gap between the intertestamental period. He was, if you would, he was standing at the end of one line, at the beginning of the other. And his job was to announce the Messiah is coming on the scene. And John has this massive burden in his ministry. I mean, you see it there. His task was to tell people that they're sinners and they have to repent. And then he had to tell the religious might of his day to back off. And then he had to tell both groups, Messiah is coming. And you know what? Everybody needs to get ready. And John knew his Old Testament well. And John knew that every prophet of God usually ended up dying. Fair enough? So John knows he's a dead man. And I think that if you know you're a dead man, clothes and food, they probably won't mean that much to you. Life gets pretty simple once you know you're going to die, that the clock is on you. So maybe that's why he dressed the way he did. 
I also know that John didn't dress the way he did and ate the way he did for attention. He was an incredibly humble person. He said things like this. This is John chapter 3, verse 30. Speaking of Christ. Christ must become greater. I must become less. And of course it happened. As Jesus comes on the scene, John just keeps stepping back and back and back. John chapter 1, verse 27. Speaking of Christ, he says, There's one who's going to come after me and the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. So he was a strange man with strange clothes and a strange diet who was preaching in a really strange place. Fair enough, verse 4, uh, baptizing in the desert region, the desert region. I mean, if you're going to start something, John, why do you not go where the people are? You should go where the temple is, right? And you start there because there's lots of people there. And then you can kind of do your Pied Piper thing all the way out to that hot, uninhabitable depression. That's the Jordan Valley where John actually was. Jordan Valley was like, you know how these things work. Valley down here, about 1,100 feet below sea level. And so it was a hot, uninhabitable depression. Why are you there, John? Well, maybe, maybe the point is being made here uh, that it wasn't the location that, that kicked the thing in, right? So we need a highly accessible place with lots of lush green grass for the folks to sit on and it would be great if there was kind of like a nice breeze so they won't get too hot because they get too hot and they're not going to pay attention to John's preaching I mean if you think about it someone say John if you're really a prophet if you're really a forerunner you ought to position yourself a lot better than that because no one's going to go out there John but what do you see what do you see in verse 5 the whole Judean countryside And all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. So even if we allow for hyperbole, that's a big deal. Everybody was there. People from the high street, people from the low street. If you would, it wasn't a homogeneous crowd, right? So it wouldn't be like all minivans and all SUVs in the parking lot. There'd be some really super nice cars and there'd be like bicycles in the lot. Everybody was there. And not only were they coming... But they were actually paying attention to what he was saying. And this is what will happen. One by one, they began to confess their sins and baptized by John, responding to his message. Okay, so, so in essence, this was John's message. He was, he was calling the people to go back to God. He was telling them, get ready for Messiah. He was calling them to turn back, uh, turn their backs on their sin and their selfishness. And he was calling them to prove their genuineness in all of this by being baptized. And he was very clear that this baptism, it wasn't a salvation baptism. It was, if you would, a preparation baptism. It's pointing forward to the work that would be accomplished in the Messiah. But it was still, this was a necessary step. So again, ask yourself the question, okay, this is not a salvation baptism, so why are they being baptized? Well, what's the use? Well, this is what I think. I think that John's baptism was almost like a restart for the people of that day, and this is the reason why. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were the lead teachers of John's day. And according to Matthew's gospel, they were teaching wonderful things like, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Right? And get even with those who hurt you, make you angry. And, and by the way, um, you need to hide all your sin because that's what they did. The, the Pharisees always called for like stricter performance. And John was calling for heart in repentance. 
So it was all about an outward show and no inward change. And that was the deceit of their message. So the people were hiding their sins all the time. And they had their airs on, their put-ons, like they never really sinned. And if you're putting on that air, then you're going to find it incredibly hard to repent. When the guy behind the box says, repent. And we do know that the Pharisees loved a good show, didn't they? Robes and the things on their head and... Hey, pastor, we love the people in the streets saying, there he goes. I see him walking by. There he goes. They love that. Then there's the Sadducees. And they were no better. They didn't believe in a resurrection, which meant in their minds, there'd be no judgment. And so there's no resurrection. There's no judgment. And that means all that matters is now. So I'm going to live in the now. I'm going to live for the moment. And I'm going to make my name great here. I'm going to make my life great here. Maybe even have a legacy so my, at least my name could continue because there's no there out there. All there is is now. And of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the lead teachers of the day and they made a practice beyond all their ugly teachings. They made a practice of exploiting the people. And they had the most devilish way to do it. They used religious means to exploit the people. Thank God that doesn't happen anymore, right? Right? But, and I want you to listen carefully, even in all that corruption, and all that incorrect instruction, the people listening to John's preaching were still held accountable by God for what they did. So John didn't say, listen, I know it's been bad for you. It's covered. It's, you're, you're not at fault. It's the other guys. It's a bit of a mystery, isn't it? The people were still held accountable. They still needed to repent. In effect, what they didn't do, this was their sin. They did not check their Bibles to make sure what these guys were teaching them was true. And it's a lesson for us all, isn't it? I don't know what you read when you leave here. I don't know what you listen to in terms of Christian stuff when you leave here. But I do know that if you're smart, You'll check the Bible to find out what they're saying is true. And you'll know the difference between just giving you good advice or preaching Jesus Christ and his gospel to you. The strangeness of John and this whole scene, uh, then it doesn't account for John's impact. So what I mean by that is you can't say, okay, this was a freak show in the desert and people like freak shows and that's why they came. No. No. The people repenting of their sin, not going to be because of a freak show. It's a, it's a movement of God. It's a movement of God. B- before we get to our final point, I'm not sure if I, I did say this in the first service. When you study revivals in history, because in essence, this is what is happening. The first step of two, the first step of every genuine revival is this massive work of God where people finally understand the the, the depravity of their sin. And they're just so heartbroken by it. And the stuff they've been hiding, they just repent of it and let it out. Exactly what John is preaching. Get it out. Get it out. Name it. Seek forgiveness for it. It's there. Let the light come. Expose it. And then, at least historically, that's when revivals came. No more playing around. 
right? No more heirs. This is who I am. And apart from Jesus Christ, it's awful. It's awful. Final point. Number one, first point, point made, Jesus is God and, and he is the only one. He's your only hope in life and death. A second, the messengers promised, right? Isaiah prophesied all those years ago. John doesn't come out of nowhere then. Jesus doesn't come out of nowhere. It's been written about way before the event. Arrival described, it's a very strange arrival, that's sure. But John's message is clear, it's straightforward. Religious people take offense to John, but the repentant, they're encouraged by John. Finally, message given. This is the message. Verse 7, after me comes the one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John knows his message. Very clear. And John also knows his place. John did not preach himself, did he? John is not trying to tie himself to the Messiah to get a little crowd boost. John exalted Christ. John did not use Christ. John did not promote himself John did not exploit people at the expense of Christ. John understands that the, that the principal work of every genuine called preacher of the gospel, this is it, to keep putting the Lord Jesus Christ and his fitness and his fullness before the people. That's the work of a pastor. Every faithful minister of the gospel is to show this is how fit Jesus is. This is the fullness of Jesus. This is the power of Jesus to save. Therefore, John is not saying something like this. Well, one time I was, on, I was on my couch and I felt God saying to me, Johnny boy, I got some big plans for you. And Johnny, you just stay in your joy. You just stay right there and it's all going to happen. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm just a man. I can only take you so far. But Messiah, he's going to provide the very cleaning which is being pictured in this baptism that you're doing. He's going to provide. The water is just a symbol. The Holy Spirit, when Jesus comes, that's the reality. So you see, the important thing about this is you cannot question John's integrity. He kept preaching. He kept pointing people to Christ. And he lived with the fallout of that. It took him to his death. No one could question John's humility. When he said what he said in verse 7, you see it there. I don't even deserve to stoop down and untie the sandals of the Messiah. This is what every listener would know, that people wore sandals in that day, right? But wealthy people wore sandals. And when a wealthy person would come home, they would have a slave just waiting for them. They walked through the door, the slave would drop to their knees, take off the sandals and pull them off their feet, untie them and begin to clean them. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that to this Messiah who's coming. I am nothing. On one occasion, John was asked a question. This was in John's gospel. Okay, are you, are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And on and on. No, 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 no. He's just being peppered with questions. And then the last question, John, what do you say about yourself? In other words, John, tell us about yourself. That's a dangerous question, isn't it? Tell me about yourself. Ho, ho. Let me just tell you about myself. This is what John says. I'm just a voice called the shout. I'm just a finger pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm a light. I'm a very little light pointing to the one who is the light of the world. And if I have any significance at all, it lies only in the fact that I am here serving the appearing of the Messiah, the Son of God. And you see, the authority of his message is then rooted in God himself. Not John's experience, but in God himself. In fact, John's gospel says there was a man sent from God. 
Now, loved ones, as you think about that, that is the authority, uh, uh, the basis for every preaching ministry. Everyone, if you would, who stands behind this box and says, open your Bibles and turn to. So don't confuse the gift of, of the gab, the talent of the talker. That guy's got great stories. He's got great jokes. Don't confuse that with the call of God, the equipping of the man of God who's been given gifts to equip the saints to preach the gospel, and all of his authority comes from God himself. And you see, the reason why John could speak with such authority is because he knew who he wasn't. See, that's the key. He knew he, who he wasn't. John keeps himself very low. And in his humility, humility, that is the catalyst for his authority. I mean, think about this. What right did John have to tell people, repent, of your sins. Right? What right? And what if John was like naming sins? Right? So what if he said like 21st century sins? And I didn't even want to name them. I mean, the e- you know the easy ones I could just throw out there. I'm not going to do that. But what if he did that? And what if they were ours? And you would say, you know what? I don't like the way he looks. I don't like the way he dresses. I don't like what he's saying. And yet he was sent from God. Messiah is about to come. Make way, make way for the Messiah. He's about to come, and there's only one adequate response. <laughs> Moms, you know this, right? Your kids are outside, and they're playing, and they get really dirty, and they come back in with their beautiful smiles, and what's your one response? Get in the bath. That's what John was saying. You need a bath. You need a bath. Integrity, humility, authority, clarity. I mean, is not his message pretty clear? I'm preaching a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You have sin. Confess your sin. Turn from your sin. And by the way, get in the water and get ready for Christ. That's his message. Get in the water and get ready for Christ. And is this not true? You had integrity, humility, authority, clarity, but you also had urgency. So that tells me something about John. He might have been strange, but he wasn't a freak. So if there's urgency, that means he cares about what he says. He cares about the people that he's saying it to. And he cares about the honor of Christ in the world. Which is why he says what? Make way, make way for Jesus. He's the son of God. He's the only one that can save you. So it would be hard for me to think that John didn't want anybody coming to the desert, leaving the desert, without a baptism. I can say the same thing in this way. I don't want anyone ever leaving here not knowing Jesus. I don't want anyone ever leaving here not knowing why he came and recognizing the fact that the story of Jesus is not a program to follow. It's not a philosophy to adopt, but it's about a person. A real person to believe on, to love, to trust, and to know. That's the person that John's announcing. That's the person that Mark's writing about. It's Jesus. He's the only one. The only one.
Thank you for your attention. Let's bow and pray. Father, we give glory to your name. And we are very thankful, God, for all who have gone before us to keep the message of the cross in the eyes and ears and mouths of people. Jesus, you really, truly are only hope in life and death. And sometimes we pretend we're on and we're righteous and everything's clicking for us, but then just one thing changes, one little thing, and then we see our great need, which was always there, of a Savior. Please, Holy Spirit, work in all of us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. And may your blessing rest on everyone here as they go into the holiday weekend. Give them rest. Give them peace. Give them joy. And give them a happy Sunday and Monday. And as they break into Tuesday, may that same peace and joy be with them. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.